2: Hello and welcome to The Power Test, the political podcast that asks if it really is all over for the Tories and what Labour needs to do to win and change Britain for the better. I'm Aisha Hazarika.
3: And I'm Sam Friedman. Today we turn to crime and punishment. The UK has some of the most crowded prisons in Europe, a chronic backlog of criminal cases and police forces marred by scandal. So what does a new government need to do with the criminal justice system?
2: Later on, we'll be joined by the former Secretary of State for Justice and Lord Chancellor under Theresa May, David Gawke, the current Police and Crime Commissioner for Northumbria and a candidate for Labour's nomination for the newly created North East Mayor, Kim McGuinness, and a former superintendent at the Metropolitan Police, Leroy Logan, who advocates for good relationships between police and Britain's ethnic minority communities.
3: So, Sam, how are you? Oh, well, I've been good. I've been mostly watching the Ashes, so I've been. Uh, I don't. I don't think cricket is your thing. Am I right? In, I'm looking
2: in... at you very blankly. Although I've had to do lots of cricket updates on my <laughs> You show. actually
3: understand what you're talking I about. I speak
2: to some very brilliant <laughs> cricket man who just talks at me, and then I go. And so, how are things looking for tomorrow? <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, yes, so, but I, so I, I have been enjoying that despite Australia winning. But um, uh, has been a more depressing week on the political front. Lots of doom and gloom. Mm. I actually think it's been Sunak's worst week as prime minister, which is saying a lot, given he's had some pretty bad weeks already, even though he hasn't been doing it for a year. But if you look sort of across the board, it's been been catastrophic for him Uh, on all of his five pledges. So if you look at, you know, a couple of them were about the economy. We've seen really terrible inflation data this week, uh, inflation not going down as most analysts expected it to. And that really risks any prospects for economic growth. In the next year, we've seen, you know, despite some hubris from Sonak a few weeks ago on small boats saying his policies were working, actually, it was really just the weather. And since the weather got better, there's been 3,000 asylum seekers have arrived on small boats since the 10th of June. We've seen worse NHS waiting lists. Again, they're not going down, they're going up. We're now at seven and almost seven and a half million people. So, you know, across the board, in all of his pledges, things are getting worse, not better. And that was the one thing they were sort of hanging on to. And at the same time, you've had the re-emergence of Partygate, the vote in the Commons on Monday on Johnson's suspension, where I think Sinek made a huge strategic mistake of not turning up and sort of just absenting himself and looking like uh, he wasn't taking any leadership on the issue. So, you know, So many different ways this has been a really bad week for Sinnak. And actually, you can see that in the polls. We've seen Labour's lead has shot up this week. It was about 15, 14, 15%. percent has gone up to about 20% across a a bunch of different polls this week, which is the first time that's really happened this year. So, yeah, a a pretty hopeless week for the Tories. And I think they're, they're getting to the point where they're not very far away from giving up.
2: Yeah, it definitely was a bit of a stinker. And I thought it was really interesting that Sunak didn't take, like, if you wanted to do something really big this week to define yourself against your predecessor, Sunak should have turned up for that vote. And actually, I think gone further, I think he should say that he's going to do everything he can to stop this peerage of, of Sean Bailey and indeed mm. kind of stop the Boris uh, Johnson nominations and stop the Liz Trust nominations as well. If, Sunak had done that, I think we'd be having a very different conversation mm. today. I think we'd say, "Do you know what? Fair play to the guy. He's taken an opportunity. Big moment for him. Shown a lot of balls. You know, good for him." Ironically, it was left to Penny Mordant to sort mm. of like kind of you know we'd known about the sword, and she's she's got bigger balls than Sunak. That's just I thought the that was a truth. real
3: defining moment for the of the government was when. It was just her on the front bench. There were no other ministers, no other front benches anywhere around her. And she was the only one.
2: She was there metaphorically with her sword. She was
3: metaphorically with her sword again. And, but like, And
2: fabulous hair. Uh,
3: it, <laughs> I mean, it, It's just extraordinary that only one person would even be prepared to defend the Privileges Committee, which had a Conservative majority on it. And um, I, I
2: do also have to pay tribute to my former boss, Harriet Harman, who was an absolute legend. I mean, I think she has handled this whole thing brilliantly. I pay tribute to... Everyone involved in the Privileges Committee. I love the joke that she made in the house about how she and Theresa May were wearing the same necklace. Mm. And what's interesting about that is they used to absolutely despise each other. They used to chase each other around television studios, mm. denouncing each other And <laughs> um, back in the day when Harriet Harman was actually she was leader of the house and Theresa May was shadow leader of the house and there they are sort of backing each other up wearing the same necklaces. Yes
3: I think she did a great and and, and if you haven't seen the clip of her absolutely slapping down Jacob Bruce Mogg (laughs) in the Commons during the debate it's well worth a watch. Actually when she'd finished doing it he had nothing left to say and someone I think it was a Labour MP shouted that's a mic drop Jacob which I've never heard the phrase mic drop shouted in the Commons before I don't know if it's going to go into Hansard (laughs) but no she did she did a good job the Privileges Committee did a good job actually four Tory MPs, you know, must have been under a lot of pressure to give way.
2: But the point you made about the government giving up, I really felt that this week because on Monday I was in Birmingham hosting a really excellent conference all about looking at how Britain can improve its trading conditions in in post-Brexit Britain. It was called Trade Unlocked. There were so many different businesses there, small businesses, medium businesses, international conglomerates, from sort of fishermen to pharmacists and FinTech. It really had the kind of depth and the range of British business. And basically the British economy was represented there. And there were three people from Labour not one person from the government turned mm. up. And so many requests went out. They didn't even send like a junior bag carrier. And mm. it's an easy gig, right? It's yeah. not a difficult gig. Businesses really want to engage. And to me, that seemed extraordinary, given that growth, growth, growth is the big message. And you couldn't even be bothered to send one person to a conference like this.
3: And you can see it in the number of MPs who are who are quitting. You know, we've now had Over 40 Tory MPs have said they're not standing at the next election. There's sort of just a sense across Westminster that it's done for them. But that kind of gets to the point of this whole series, which is if it is going to be Labour, almost by default, because the government have given up and potentially by a lot with a big majority, because it's so obvious that they've given up, their inheritance is going to be horrendous. They're going to have all of these problems, which are sort of Sunak was hoping to make some improvements on, but hasn't. And they're going to sort of be hit with them all at once.
2: Absolutely, and I was talking to some SNP MPs um, last night as well and many of them have sort of given up a bit as well Mm.
3: the playing field is is emptying leaving labor standing there by themselves almost because everyone's like okay well you deal with it good luck
2: yeah if everyone's (laughs) vacated the pitch is that a huge you know it's a win
3: it's a win but it it sort of leaves you thinking okay where is everyone else gone guys (laughs) guys exactly (laughs) where is everyone Um, and obviously we've been picking up a lot of those challenges over the course of the the series today we're talking about crime and punishment which which in a way is not as problematic as some of the other areas in that crime numbers themselves, depending on exactly how you look at the measurement, are not actively getting any worse and have got a lot better since the mid-90s. But there is still, even even in this policy area, a sense of, of crisis around because of the kind of mess that the court system is in and the criminal justice system is in, in terms of incredibly long backlogs, two-year-long backlogs for court cases, running out of prison spaces. It's pretty bad.
2: My take on this as well is there's a gender and sex element to this Mm. as well, because women right now are not feeling any confidence in the criminal justice system. Sexual offences logged by police in England and Wales hit a record high last year. But women also have the double whammy of falling justice in terms of prosecutions Mm. and people feeling that that justice has been done properly and then on top of that you have a police force that women clearly don't have any confidence in following David Carrick the sort of prolific rapist that was in the Metropolitan Police and of course Sarah Everard being murdered by Wayne Cousins so even though the figures are actually quite stable I think there is a gendered lens on this as well.
3: Well, and also I think that goes to the point that there is very low trust in, in the police in some parts of the population. Overall, trust in the police has actually fallen. It's still relatively high compared to sort of politicians and the media and so on, but it has fallen and has been falling for some time. And I think, as you say, among certain groups within the population, young women, people from ethnic minorities, I think that trust is much much lower still and with some justification given how much of a mess the Met have made of everything over the last few years.
2: And then on top of that as well there is the overlay of all the cuts that have happened over the the, the last kind of 10 or so years. You saw police numbers hollowed out to the point where the Tory party then took great credit for for bringing the numbers back to where they were, were. Um, also cuts to the court system. We've got shortages. The police are trying to recruit people. There's issues over recruitment. And we know as well that there's huge shortages in the court system. So when you look at the infrastructure of crime, justice, police, it is a bit of a mess at the moment.
3: And I think there's a sort of interesting, as we get into this topic with our guests from the sort of the power test perspective. There's a really interesting problem, I think, for for both polit- main political parties, in that the political imperative on crime is always to sound tough. You know, that the, the British public like authoritarian measures. Uh, that's pretty clear if you look at, at the polling. You're never going to go wrong by talking about cracking down on antisocial behaviour or you know making some drug illegal. You know, that will get p- public support. But the, if you then look at the actual problems in our system, our prisons are full, our courts are creaking. We don't actually have any space for more and more crackdowns and, and criminalizing. No and there's no money, right? So you've got this, this strange dichotomy that, that parties have to operate in and Labour ha- are going to have to operate in where the political incentive is always to sound as tough as possible. But the policy incentive, if you like, the financial incentive, is to back off and in fact do some of the things that one of our guests, David Gawke, was trying to do as Justice Secretary, sort of having fewer people in prison. This was really well put by one of our our listeners who emailed in a question, uh, Penelope Gibbs, who's the head of Transform Justice, which is an organisation campaigning for change in the criminal justice system Uh, and she put it when the prisons are full the treasury's coffers are empty and the evidence is clear that increasing imprisonment doesn't reduce crime why are the government and the opposition hell-bent on increasing prison numbers
2: Cameron Holloway has messaged in Uh, he's got a question for David Gork he says David Gork wanted to abolish prison sentences of six months or less which I think is a great idea does he still think six months is the right level
3: There was quite a lot of questions for David. uh, Fern has asked uh, whether he regrets the government's cuts to legal aid during his time uh, in Parliament. So we will will definitely be putting some of those questions to him.
2: And Michael Smith has um, a question which a lot of people identify with. Um, He says it's currently taken around three and a half years for a family member's case to get to trial. We're still waiting and have had the case cancelled four times the day before. What are the chances parties will focus on tackling this rather than gimmicks?
3: Absolutely, and I think this is exactly what we're going to get into with our guests. And I think if you look at where the parties are at the moment, the Tories have... Kind of zoned in on a very political focus on, on antisocial behaviour, which absolutely is is a, is a real uh, frustration for, for an awful lot of people. But they're just doing more of the same kind of things we've been trying for 20 years. And if they'd been working for the last 20 years, then we wouldn't need to do them again now. More patrols, you know, fining for littering and graffiti, double the ban on laughing gas. These are pretty minor things.
2: High-vis clothing, that's what always... was...
3: I've seen that briefed like about by every Tory administration since 2010. <laughs> that they're going to make people doing sort of community service and so on, wear high-vis vests out. So there's a sort of sense of shame about your criminal activity. I mean, they would
2: really like an orange jumpsuit. Yes.
3: <laughs> yeah, but they never actually do it. I, I'm not quite sure never, but they but brief, it's brief year after year. I think it's just sort of indicative of this sort of very symbolic approach to crime where yet you're picking up on the fact that people are really worried about something, but you're not doing anything really that's going to substantively change it but then if we look at labor policy i think you know, they they've set some very ambitious targets halving violent crime against women and girls as you've said that's a huge issue halving instance of knife crime raising confidence in the police all of these things sound great but they haven't really explained how they're going to do them or what the sort of financial consequences of that would be.
2: The other thing which has been interesting for Labour on Crime, they've gone in quite hard with some of these attack adverts as well, um, led by Steve Reed and, uh, and others. So the
3: famous one was on Sunak, basically sort of saying he's done nothing about... He basically um, he's kind of, yeah. sort of
2: support. He's a bit of a nonce. They basically yeah. he, he's kind of supporting nonsense. I mean, this yeah. is where British politics is. Yes,
3: it, it was highly identifying as a as an advert, and I think it just legitimizes it when the Tories next do that kind of thing. And- oh,
2: when Boris Johnson attacked Keir. Starmer or for Jimmy Savile, right? right?
3: And, and it's fine to say, okay, but if they're going to do it, we have to fight back. I'm not sure I agree with that. I think stay on the high ground and get some points from pointing out that they're going on the low ground. But
2: particularly because there's, there's an embarrassment of riches for yeah. Labour to attack the Tories. It's on not crime. like there's right no now. real problem yeah. to talk about, right? Yeah.
3: So, and I actually think it came from frustration. I mean, I was told that Keir Starmer did a speech on crime where he sort of talked a lot about antisocial behaviour. Uh, how Labour wanted to be tough. Sunak made a very similar speech the next the next week, and Sunak's speech got a lot of coverage on the BBC, and Starmer's didn't, and they were just really annoyed at that discrepancy. So I think that was one of the things that sort of just led them to think, "Screw it." You know, there were, it was a sort of sense of frustration and anger led to that advert rather than clear thinking. Yeah,
2: I know, but you should never
3: let your anger cloud oh, your judgment. Yeah, yeah, should yeah. you? <laughs>
2: So what does it mean to pass the power test on this issue of crime? Are the parties trusted? And if they win, do they have a workable plan to tackle the problems in the system, from prisons to sentencing and rehabilitation and much more besides?
3: Joining us today to bring a forensic focus on all of this, we have David Gork. David was Secretary of State for Justice and Lord Chancellor under Theresa May. He was the first solicitor to have held the post. Hello, David.
1: Hello.
2: Also in the studio, we have Dr Leroy Logan. Leroy is a former superintendent at the Metropolitan Police whose book Closing Rank provides a frank account of his 30 years in the police force, a story told as part of the Small act series of films in which he was played by the actor John Boyega. Leroy is now chair of the campaign group Transition to Adulthood, which advocates for a criminal justice system that takes into account the distinct needs of young adults. Leroy, hello and welcome.
4: Thank you very much for the invite. It's great to be here.
3: And joining us down the line, we have Kim McGuinness. Kim is the Labour, Police and Crime Commissioner for Northumbria, who's currently running for the Labour nomination to be the Mayor of the North East of England. Hello, Kim.
0: Hello, thanks for having me.
3: So I'm going to start off with a quick question and I want a word... Or a sentence maximum. What's the current state of the criminal justice system? Obviously, a big question. David,
1: not good.
4: Struggling. Nero, extremely flawed. Kim,
3: completely broken. Right. So we have a positive, uh, positive view. of the And we have a consensus. Um, uh, uh, so let's let's dig into into what the the big challenges are. I'm going to going to start with you, David. Now, what's gone wrong? You know, 13 years of Tory government. Why are we in a place where you're all sort of immediately saying it's pretty bad?
1: Well, I think some of the problems are pretty long dated, actually. So if you're looking at the prison system, we've seen a very substantial increase in the prison population since the early 90s. And I think we've struggled to cope with that. There are more recent problems. Clearly, the courts are struggling to cope. Uh, with the demand there. There's a number of factors. Clearly, the the budgets have been tight over a long period of time. Pay for criminal barristers has been reduced. It's also the case that post-COVID, there are implications of that. That's caused quite a substantial backlog. So there are a number of factors in here. Some of it is to do with money, but there is also, I would argue, a kind of Knee jerk response that's been there for quite a long time that the answer to every problem is always a longer sentence, always locking people up more, a focus on prison too much rather than looking at alternatives to custody as a way to address criminality in some cases.
3: And you tried to change that when you were Justice Secretary. You tried to sort of take away shorter prison sentences. Can you tell us a bit about sort of what the pushback to that idea was, why it hasn't happened?
1: I didn't get as much pushback uh, for that policy as I expected to. So the policy I was pushing forward never got it fully implemented, but we were on course to to make some progress. There was was essentially to say no uh, short sentences, uh, no sentences below six months. There were some exceptions, things like contempt of court and so on, but but largely, you know, either someone should go inside for longer, or better still, they should have a non custodial sentence. That, in truth, wasn't going to dramatically reduce the prison population size. But what we do know is that short sentences are useless when it comes to rehabilitation. They generally mean that if someone has a job, they lose a job. If they've got family connections, that could be weakened. If they've got a home, they can lose that as well, all of which makes them more likely to commit more offences in future. So it was an attempt to sort of shift the culture to some extent that... We move away from custodial sentences. Now I was rather surprised at the progress I was able to make. At the time the government was perhaps distracted by other things uh, and th- actually, the media response was much kinder than I expected. Um, it wasn't pursued. There was a change of government. Boris Johnson, as prime minister, was never going to go for anything that could be seen as being soft on crime. It didn't fit with his overall political narrative, and the policy got dropped. And I think that is a pity. And I think you know when you look at what the strains on the prison service at the moment, you know there, there are hardly any spare cells. As we speak, you know, I think the last time I looked, there were about 100 spare cells in the yeah. entire prison population of 85,000 people. Um, and a lot are very, very over- overcrowded house. as well. Absolutely. A lot of them are overcrowded. So you've got people in uh, you know, c- cells that were built by the Victorians for one person uh, in the 21st century. We've got two people in those cells.
2: And David, when you look back at the period of, of government led by, you know, Conservative Prime Minister back from 2010 to where we are now... Just being really honest, how much of an effect do you think austerity had from things like police cuts to the impact on the court services, cuts to things like mental health services, youth services, all of that in aggregate has contributed to this sort of worsening crime and
1: justice situation? It would be... Wrong to say that you know, that had no impacts. I mean, clearly there are elements of you know, public services that were reduced. I mean, to give a very obvious example, we reduced the number of prison officers. Yeah. Um, and then even by 2016, it was clear that that needed to be at least in part reversed and indeed was reversed. I think when you look at, clearly, the court service, that has faced uh, problems from austerity. I mean, we can have the sort of wider argument. I happen to believe that we were poorer following the global financial crisis and that we were going to have to make some tough decisions on public spending. But justice took a larger share of the pain than any other part of government, largely because the public does care about it less. You know, it's not top of the priorities for most people. They don't have very much to do with the criminal justice system uh, at any one time. And that meant that there were very few, if you like, political defences. Yeah. Um, and, it's and one it of those things, isn't it, it where it, like,
2: it. people are never going to cry that the justice budget has cut been cut until the justice system starts falling apart and then they're like, why has this happened? And
3: even that, it's not visible unless you're, you've you got a relative, as one of our questioners had a relative involved um, in a court case. You, you A lot of people just wouldn't understand the effects that legal aid cuts or so on have had. It which is very different from something like the NHS where it's you know, huge numbers of people experience it every month and you'll definitely have a relative or friend who's experienced it. Well, so. I, I
4: beg to differ because uh, <laughs> I, I know from... Um, Shortly after uh, retiring from the, the Met in uh, 2013, people already starting to say, hold on here, we don't see a, an officer on the street. Those sort of patrols of uh, safer neighbor teams, which was one sergeant, two constables, and three police community support officer for each ward, all of a sudden, they were very rarely seen. And I, and I think people still started to tweak, hold on here, these cuts, are impacting on our reassurance that we're safe and secure and at the same time feeling, well, how far does this go? I
3: Do think I think know? that's absolutely right. and I think you could see that in the 2017 election when police mm. cuts were, were quite a big issue. Um, I think there's a distinction between that and, of course, Boris Johnson did put more money back into the police. and Eventually. eventually. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the, but the, the damage had been done. But, after a lot of damage, but the court system... Not, there hasn't been any kind of recovery package for that, really. So I think there's a sort of distinction between the bit that people see, as you say, the police, and then the bit that and people And how don't they're so investigated.
4: I, I mean, I was burgled in 2016. And uh, fortunately, at had some uh, good old CCTV, as you do, as a retired cop. <laughs> and uh, not only were they um, caught, two out of the three were convicted. And I must admit, I had to push so hard just to ensure, not just the police officers got the uh, memory stick with the footage circulated it got the perpetrators arrested well, at least at least two out of three but also to make sure it goes through the justice system and you know i was picking it up from then that there seems to be over emphasis on the victim forcing things through and maybe it's because of the connections i had i was able to have a great impact than most other people. Why do you that. think
3: that is? Because like, you hear this an awful lot. Yeah, I'm sure we've all, all either had a personal experience or friends who've had a minor sort of burglary or their bike's been stolen or computer's been stolen and nothing ever happens about it. Why aren't those things being pursued in the same way that they were perhaps 15, 20 years ago?
4: Well, when you've got less officers and you've got higher caseload of other crimes, I mean, one of the biggest things that's hit us is cybercrime. And those sort of smaller crimes important as they are, getting your car broken into or your house broken into. Very are traumatic things. for Exactly. People. But there seems to be a reconfiguring to say, well, actually, it's an insurance claim, so we'll run it off as you claiming for the insurance. All right. Motor vehicle crime, forget it. There is no forensics, no follow-up. Very rarely you see any an officer come round to you, look at your vehicle like before. Burglaries, yes. And I know there's a big push on burglaries at the moment to get an officer to be there. But again you get the sense as a victim of a burglary that well you know it's nothing too dramatic no one was hurt they got away with a few bits insurance claim no I want them arrested and that's what people want to hear they want to hear the successes as well and if you're not investigating them, you're not going to get the successes to communicate. Yeah,
2: I think that's such an important um, part of the of, of the story because, I mean, David, you've set out very compellingly about how sometimes you know short sentences aren't the answer from a rehabilitation and reoffending point of view. Leroy has set out from a victim's point of view. You know, if you've had your house burgled, particularly if you've been in there with your kids, that's a really psychologically traumatic thing you want to see somebody you know prosecuted and there's a tension Kim I mean you're the police and crime commissioner for Northumbria I mean you're overseeing and and looking at this you know day to day what's your assessment of those you know differing viewpoints the public policy
0: and and trying to be efficient and then how the victims feel I think actually they're not mutually exclusive and I find it very difficult to argue with either David or or Leroy's point and I think the point on short-term sentences is absolutely spot on they don't work they absolutely wreck all of the things in people's lives that prevent them from re-offending and quite often they further criminalize people and I could make an awful lot of points about particularly women getting short-term sentences disproportionately and the impact it, it has on them and I think Leroy's point about it, it, it's the feeling that the victim is left with, that, that sense of injustice. Now, whilst I accept that that can be tackled by definitely seeing a police officer, the feeling that there's been an investigation, and we want to see more of that, I don't think justice is always a prison sentence. I think we need to be better at things like community sentences. We need to be better at out-of-court disposals. We need to be better at uh, restorative justice. And ultimately, I think that point that David made around it's very difficult to get the public motivated to care about cuts to, for example, courts or probation or prisons. I think that's absolutely true. But cuts to policing are so visible and quite often they're so unequal as well.
1: Well, yeah, I, mean, I very much agree with with Kim's uh, main point. So I'd also add GPS tagging. Which was uh, which was something Absolutely. which was something that we were just starting to to roll out in my time, and the potential there to be to be used. And to some extent, coming back to to Leroy's point, yeah, victims want people caught, they want them prosecuted, and they want them sentenced. But ultimately, you, know, you look at the number of people we put inside compared to almost every other European country. Um, we have a very, very large prison population, even historically. Go back to 1993, we had a prison population that was around about 40,000. Now it's 85,000. It's been static, to be fair, for the last 15 years, but that is still a high prison population.
2: So for me, just to inject a bit of, I suppose, real politic. I mean, we're we're about to enter, we're pitch rolling towards a general election. It's probably going to be quite a nasty general election. There's going to be lots of culture war issues The Tories are going to go very hard on Labour being soft on crime. Large sections of the right-wing press will probably promulgate that as well. Kim, you know, you're on the front line of politics. How does Labour sort of handle that? Because I feel like the messages from Labour have been quite tough. They've been like, we're going to be really, really tough on crime. We want to see more people arrested, prosecuted, cracking down on antisocial behaviour. We want longer prison sentences. How does Labour sort of navigate saying things like, you know, you've made a good argument for community sentences, but you will have the the right wing press prosecuting that Labour's going to be soft on crime?
0: Well I think the answer is, and and hopefully I'll be the first in the podcast to use this phrase, but it's tough on crime tough on the post <laughs> isn't it? Bing bing bing. We were waiting for that. Do you know I think, if I'm not wrong, it's the only thing from the 1997 manifesto that was also in the 2019 manifesto, and it's still absolutely right today. It has got to be the approach. We can't promote uh, the idea that you know we're not going to be tough on criminals. We have to be. We can't live in a society where criminals uh, feel that they they won't be caught and prosecuted for their crimes. That's not right, and it's become far too normal for crime not to be prosecuted, not to be resolved. But ultimately, if we're going to make a difference, if we're going to reduce crime, if we're going to give people better life outcomes, if we're going to save money, which is something that's so necessary for us at the moment, we've got to get ahead of it and we've got to shift that narrative to prevention.
3: So, I think the the reason that phrase is still still so popular uh, is that it's one of the best pieces of political communications ever come up with. It's you know it's wonderfully encapsulates. Uh, a very complex idea in in, in, in a sentence, but it it feels at the moment like we 're hearing a lot from labor and the Tories, but on the first half of that sentence you know tough on tough on crime, and not very much on the second half of the sentence. Firstly, do you think that's fair, and secondly, how do labor talk more about the the second half, especially in a very fiscally constrained environment where you can 't sort of promise lots of big spending pledges
0: i think i do, i don 't think it 's entirely fair I think Actually, what happens is often it's the tough on crime bit that cuts through, and it's the bit that naturally is attractive to to the media. It, it's it's shiny and it's very announceable. But a lot of what Labour are talking about with regard to taking a trauma informed approach to to criminal justice, you know, prevention through things like family hubs and community hubs, these are absolutely the solutions to preventing crime and. They're much less easy for the media to talk about and they're much more complex, but they are also the truth in terms of the solution. And what I would say, I would naturally say that we need more power to put these policies in place devolved into our regions and closer to where people live so that we're able to tackle the actual issues that are facing us directly where we live. And we've got mechanisms to do that with police and crime commissioners and with mayors and we've seen a a big agenda around that also from Labour and I think policing and crime has to be a part of that.
4: Leroy? Yeah, um, I I think there's a fine line to tread um, for Labour because they don't want to be seen as just a a sidekick of the Tories, you know, just reiterating this sort of populist type of policies where it's just about, you know, ramping up, um, stop and search like Suella Breverman said this week. Because that sort of narrative is just falling in the hands of certain agendas where people are in policing and wider justice system for control and power. And they think ramping up means body slamming people and slapping on handcuffs before they have reasonable grounds. And I heard a story um, today, because uh, I still do police training, and I heard a terrible story where a man, a black man running to the gym, 3 a.m. in the morning before he goes to work, he gets stopped, totally complies, and as a result of that officers not only put the red dot on him from the taser and said get on your knees and assume a the position they handcuff him they didn't find anything and then 20 30 minutes later they release him and as a result of that the guy said to them well how would your child like to be treated like that and he said well as long as they haven't got a knife on them that's the main thing and, and i just thought to myself all those narratives play itself out on a day-to-day basis So I I think it's really important that dog whistle politics is not taken on by chief constables and all these police crime commissioners, because I'm also concerned about the the critical distance between PCCs and chief constables. You know, some chief constables have got this right wing populist agenda and PCCs are not holding to account. And I'll end with this. The police... Uh, like a lot, of the justice system is a very can-do, success-driven type of organisation. They don't accept failure very well. So, that giving them the chance to mark their own homework is not going to work. So, you need independent oversight to ensure that what your strategy is is playing itself out on a day-to-day basis and has an impact on the culture. So, so, so Kim, I mean, you've
3: you've just been listening to that. What what's your as a PCC? What's your view on this oversight question? How have you tried to manage that part of the role? um, And and what would you like to see done at a policy level to to strengthen it?
0: I mean, I'll hold my force to account on this every single day of the week. I think it's absolutely crucial. And this question on culture is huge. We've got to attack culture change in a number of ways. First of all, we've got to keep rooting out the people who are in policing that shouldn't be there. Every time we have a a cop or an ex-cop in Northumbria who's done something they shouldn't on the front of the newspaper, you get comments online and all of the rest of it saying, oh, another bad Northumbria cop, isn't it awful? But I tell you what, I'd rather see them there than on the street in a uniform. And so encouraging others coming forward, having a culture of openness and making sure that we're going after people who shouldn't be in policing. It's got to be solutions in recruitment in terms of who are you bringing in, what are their motivations, what's the vetting like, but also the training. And then finally, and we forget to talk about this a lot when it comes to culture and policing, we've been on the receiving end of really, really significant cuts that leaves gaps in leadership. It leaves organizational memory gaps. It creates problems in terms of resource. And so it then affects performance, which also affects the way that people feel about policing. I think that sometimes this discussion becomes far too, uh, what is Sue Ella Braverman or, or saying today or what's the, the news headline on the front of the Daily Mail about bad cops or good cops or whatever it might be on any day of the week. We can say that we both think that police do an incredibly difficult job and they do a very good job the majority of the time under very difficult circumstances and also accept that there needs to be culture change. And for me giving more local oversight so that the public have more of a say in what policing priorities are in their area, and then are able to hold elected people to account for delivering those, I think is a good thing. David, do you
2: agree with that, that there sort of should be a bit more kind of devolution of the infrastructure of, you know, criminal, the criminal justice system?
1: Yeah, I think there is scope uh, to do more. There are constraints. I mean, the judiciary, for example, are very nervous if this ever sort of feeds through into sentencing. You know, that that you, for example, you get a lower sentence in one one part of the country than you would in another, and I think you do have to be. Careful
3: yeah, we already have that. that in Scotland, right? You, there is a difference. We do, we do,
1: but it's always been a. Yeah, it's as a far different as, system. It's yeah. a different system. It's a different judicial. We're a different system. country, I think. Excuse me,
2: beg your pardon.
1: As far as, as far a as regional
2: as, outpost,
1: <laughs> as far as the law is concerned, it sort of is. So very much so. So so that 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 that, that is a. A, a sort of particular sensitivity I remember from my time as as justice secretary. My, my I have to say, my experience of uh, PCCs when I was justice secretary was that a lot of them were very forward thinking, and you know, willing as as Kim obviously is, you know, willing to embrace a more informed small L liberal approach here that was more focused on rehabilitation and prevention rather than just a sort of populist approach now it could well be that the PCCs who I tended to meet who came to my meetings were the ones who were so inclined that way and those who were much more of the sort of hang and flog types uh, were, were less, in key, less keen to to engage but given that there was this sort of sense of you know, willingness to innovate and given that that might provide the opportunity to build up an evidence base of what works, that may be an easier way in which we can you know, move towards more innovative ways of dealing with people who are or, or potentially going to be criminals but not find the answer is that we're always putting them inside for a few months. Kim?
0: Simply for me, actually, it really just has to be a priority that about investing in the right places and, and spending money in the right places. I really do believe in more devolution of these services into local areas. Probation, for example, I think should be under local PCC control. And that's certainly a campaign that Labour PCCs um, will, will launch ahead of the next election. We've got to be investing in prevention of crime, investing in mental health, which we haven't even touched upon yet. You know, mental health demand and the lack of investment there. Investing in youth services, all of these things will save us a fortune in the long run but much more importantly than that they'll give people much better outcomes. That's quite
3: an interesting one on mental health because there's a row going on at the moment between the Met and the health service, different parts of the health service in London over who's responsible for getting mentally ill people who are perhaps at risk of being violent into A&E. The Met police have said they're going to stop picking people up unless they're a, a risk to life but it's not clear who is going to pick up this um, baton on that. How much of a problem do you think that is? And how would you resolve that issue, David?
1: Well, this is one of the big problems that you face with the justice system, Uh, particularly if you're sort of sitting in the MOJ, that many of the levers that really matter aren't under your control. Mm. Uh, And one of the pieces of advice, if I I would give any incoming government, is to make sure that if you're focused on... Tackling crime, improving rehabilitation, and so on—don't just sort of stick this into the sort of the the crime and justice departments. This isn't just MoJ and Home Office. You have got to get the buy-in of the Department of Health. You've got to get uh, education. You've got to get communities and local government because of housing. Uh, you've got DWP, getting people into work. You know, this has to be a kind of cross-government process. Which means,
3: really, the Prime Minister has to get involved because departments don't tend to work together unless the Prime Minister gets involved.
1: Yeah, a- absolutely. And in my time, I mean, we had David Liddington in the Cabinet Office.
3: Who's a of Deputy Prime Minister in effect.
1: Es- essentially, yeah. who had been my predecessor as Justice mm. Secretary, who was kind of very interested in it. We didn't really have time to make as much progress as any of us would have liked. But yeah, if you're really serious about this, somewhere in the centre of government, you need people banging heads together to get departments working. So, why didn't
4: the government pick up on Lord Adiboala's report in 2013 around mental health and how to police it and to take away the emphasis on police being called to these things? Because invariably, police are not trained for it, and invariably, the blue lights and sirens create agitation. But he actually, um, his report 2013, was talking about a triage approach. It's not just about police, but trained police officers with psychologists and social workers who have a good understanding of those individuals. So it's a question of getting that cross-cutting intelligence to ensure that you have those specialist people attending. And I, I agree with Mark Rowley on this one. Draw back police officers to deal with those critical matters when it's a 999 emergency situation.
2: I mean, I think, I mean, where I live in Brixton at the moment, you can really, really see that there have been cuts to mental health services and you, you really, it's visible. I mean, what, what's interesting, having done a number of these podcasts now and a number of these shows, there's such a theme emerging. We covered housing a few weeks ago. Housing cuts across health. It cuts across people's ability to get to work. There's so much cross-cutting that needs to be done across government, as you've described, David. Kim, just coming back to you, given that... If Labour wins and the polls are looking pretty good for Labour, everything we've just discussed, everything you've discussed, Leroy, David, great ideas, it does cost money and there isn't a lot of money. How is Labour going to be able to do
0: any of the good things that that you would like it to do? I think it's lots of different things. So, I mean, first of all, I think Labour's vision on what we want from this area is really clear. So we want a half knife crime, we want a half domestic abuse, we want to increase confidence, we want, ha- we want to increase resolved rates of crime. I think they're really clear, they're ambitious, and also they're the right things for the public, but it does take investment. And I think some of it is, is reprofiling and we've got to hand the cash wholesale to local areas on local priorities to deliver for the people that live there, to prioritize prevention, and at the same time to make sure that we're going after those criminals that really need to be arrested and prosecuted.
3: We like to finish by asking each of our guests whether Labour are currently passing the power test, which is a test in two parts. Uh, Are they saying the right things to get them elected in the first place, but also do they have a, a workable plan for power? David?
1: I think they're probably saying the right things to get elected on this issue. They're seeing off attacks on them, okay. Have they got a plan in office we just don't know I don't particularly blame them for not revealing that plan if they've got
4: one but we just don't know anyway from what I can see Keir Starmer is doing a good job in outlining what he wants to do without going into the details I just think they they really need to make it clear how people get involved and I'm thinking the corporate sector I'm talking about the charity sector How? organisations really get involved in this? Because it's a we and how we all contribute especially at the local level. Kim?
0: So yes, I think we are saying the right things and I think we've got the right people in place. I, I think Yvette Cooper, uh, Sarah Jones, Steve Reed, and obviously Keir Starmer as a former Chief Crown Prosecutor, people will feel that this agenda is in really, really good hands and I believe that Under Labour, this area, policing and crime, the feeling of safety that people need to have will be much improved. (music) Sam, what were you
2: thinking?
3: I'm quite depressed, to be honest. Going back to the the sort of start where we were talking about this weight of problems that are now falling on a prospective Labour government, this is sort of just a whole other area where you think, okay, there's some things that could be done, and there was actually quite a lot of agreement between our guests. Uh, from different political backgrounds on on some of the things that needed to be done. but the barriers, again, you know the, the the need to work across government, the the need to prioritize so many different things, the money, it feels a bit like last week's episode on the NHS where you're thinking, okay, you can see what we would need to happen, but can they get can they get it done? I tell you what gave me a small glimmer of hope, to, as we to try and move us away from just looking at the floor and being miserable. When David was talking about his reforms, which were, I think, more enlightened, more progressive, and 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 something that would save money, not not cost money, he said that he was surprised at how little opposition there was, sort of initially within government, but also within the media. And I think we all have this sort of certainly political parties have this perception of the public as being. Always one of his very hard, tough on crime messages, longer sentencing. And there's, there's, of course, there's an element of that. But actually, there is perhaps some openness to a more sensible discussion about this as well. I'm pulling a face. <laughs> You're not convinced.
2: <laughs> I'm totally but not convinced. Well, I think the media didn't actually I knew but, go but I think today. that was a different... I think there was... Far, there's a lot of other stuff going on at the mm. moment. He almost kind of said he sl- it slightly happened by stealth.
3: Yes, Brexit was happening and so on. So people, he was sort of yeah. able to do something sensible I don't in think, the background. Uh,
2: Sam, I love you dearly, but I think... Just me, this is
3: just me being, <laughs> I'm trying to find some hope here, Aisha. Give, so, give me something. Give me a straw to click onto. All right, onto. Pollyanna.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, look. I mean, look, I, I think there is a conversation to be had there is a journey to be gone on. Mm. But doing that journey in the run-up to an no, election No, I'm not campaign. suggesting
3: that. I think, like, as I agreed with David, you know, saying nothing is probably the right... Again, I mean, it's depressing, it's a bit cynical, but it probably is the right thing to labour. Yeah, I broadly agree with that. But I think the thing for me to be Pollyanna-esque about the thing that did give me
2: a bit of hope was... Um, I think the point that Kim made about Yvette Cooper is a good one. I actually think Yvette Cooper is, is brilliant. And, and given the absolute kind of pudding we've had in, in the home office. We've had a succession of just
3: I mean that is the lowest bar pretty battelin Swella Bar Brafman. I mean, It's the please. lowest bar to clear imagine. I kind it.
2: of like was watching Avette Cooper doing some sort of debate against Suella Bravman. It was a sort of like a racehorse going up against a donkey. And yeah, I was just So the only thing that gives me a bit of comfort is at least if Keir Starmer keeps Yvette Cooper in post and I would I think it would be absolutely nuts if he didn't at least you would have someone going in there who'd been in government before, who is not stupid, who is super bright, and is really cognizant of of all of this stuff. That probably gives me a weak. And report. there is some.
3: There's got to be some low hanging fruit when you've had such poor leadership of an institution for such a long time. Just bringing in someone competent could make a a big difference. Although you say it sort of, it would be nuts not to give her that job. There has been some tension between their teams, right? I mean, over that advert that we mentioned at the beginning, that Rishi Sunak advert, there was a bit of sort of pretty hard briefing against. Uh, Yvette Cooper in in, in the press do you, do you get a sense that that's sort of patched up now and that's sort of getting on okay
2: well I, I sort of think that quite a lot of that briefing with some slightly overexcited um, boys who think that they're the sort of love child of i Al- <laughs> been of watching Alistair too much uh, Malcolm, uh, Malcolm Tucker yeah. and, and, Ma- and Malcolm Tucker and I think that did like a huge amount of damage and I think Actually, if you look at the two issues that Yvette Cooper covers, crime and immigration, two issues which have always been high on the risk register for Labour. Labour's always been pretty weak on those. Labour's absolutely sort of spanking the Tories on those And they're those actually polling ahead on yeah, both, which exactly, has never happened before. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think, you know, if if you're Keir Starmer, I think you, you, you really want to sort of let Yvette Cooper kind of get on with things at the moment.
3: Well, she's certainly got a lot to do, that's for sure, as do all of them.
2: And as ever, we'd love to hear from you. So do get in touch with all your
3: comments and any questions. Tweet us at The Power Test or either of us directly uh, or email pod at thepowertest.co.uk. Even more importantly,
2: we'd absolutely love for you to become a founding member for a small fee. A membership will get you ad free episodes before anyone else every week, an exclusive opportunity to become part of our community and even more benefits and bonuses. Just head over to our Substack to look at your options. And if you like what you're hearing, your help in supporting us in making this podcast would be hugely appreciated. Come join us and get involved.
3: Next time, we're heading into the ragbag of different issues that are usually summed up as the culture wars. Is this really something that the Tories can push to make some ground in otherwise very difficult circumstances? And how does Labour avoid getting tripped up before a general election?